the quest for knowledge is a major motif in just about every good story or in just about every video game for that matter, there's a significant portion of the narrative that involves gaining knowledge and in gaining the kind of knowledge that doesn't just give you a set of facts, but that's actually really quite transformative. So as you read stories and watch movies, the, the main character is on a quest that involves gaining some sort of knowledge that changes who that person is. They're, they're radically transformed. And so when we think about a quest for knowledge, it's rarely just the acquisition of some facts, but it's a transformation of character. But, but then that knowledge doesn't stop there. It's, it's not enough that the character is transformed. That knowledge is intended to aid the qu- character on a larger quest. Whether that's destroying a ring or saving a princess, this character needs to be transformed with knowledge to accomplish a world-saving task. And and that should be no surprise to us because that is the biblical story. The biblical story starts with a quest for knowledge or, or at least a question of knowledge in the garden as the serpent approaches Adam and Eve and they're asked a question about knowledge, a question that pertains to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and these people take a bite of that tree and they gain some kind of knowledge, but it transforms them in a bad way. They, they become more like God, but in doing so, they become much less like God. So the, the beginning of the Christian story is a beginning of a quest for knowledge in a question about knowledge. And, and this theme pervades the rest of the Bible. If, if you get bored this week, read the Bible and follow looking for this quest for knowledge that shows up over and over again. So for instance, when Abraham is made promises by God, he asks God, how will I know that you'll make good on these promises? How, how will I know that I possess this land? And, and we start to learn something about knowledge and the answer that God gives Abraham. God does not say, you will know this because of my incomprehensible attributes or, or by giving him some other proposition. Instead, his answer is a ritual. It's, it's a ritual of pointing Abraham to animals that he's going to cut in half and walk in, in, well, that he thought he would walk through. But, but then God puts Ad, Abraham to, into deep sleep, just like Adam before him, and God communicates knowledge through a death-like transformative event. So the knowledge that the Bible talks about is never a simple proposition or articulation of fact, but it's something that's deeply transformative. And, and it doesn't end there because it, it moves that individual on to accomplish something that would otherwise never be accomplished. Well, when we are looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this theme of knowledge is picked up once again in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. So I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to consider verses 15 through 23, and we're going to pay particular attention to three things that really every Christian needs to know. But when I talk about the things that you need to know, I'm not talking about them just in terms of a proposition or a fact, but something that should go on to radically transform your daily life so that you can accomplish your calling in God. So I'll read this text for us, starting in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you, 
is I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Paul gives us three things that we need to know in this prayer. But before he gets into those three things, he, he frames it as a prayer that he always articulates on behalf of the saints in Ephesus. So he mentions there in verse 15 that because he's heard of their faith in Christ in their love for the saints, he just never stops giving thanks for them. And obviously this is a little bit hyperbolic. Paul does other things than just giving thanks for these individuals. But he's providing a bit of an example for us. He responds to the genuine work of God's calling and redemption and restoration in these individuals in their faith and love with thanksgiving and prayer. This is an example for us as we meditate on God's saving grace in the lives of others. As we've already mentioned, today there are going to be several individuals giving their testimonies for membership. And we're going to hear about their faith in Christ and their love for the saints that would draw them to join with this assembly. And there are some ways we could respond to that. One way would simply be just to listen and walk away and, and just experience something, and it doesn't really mean anything to us. Or we could follow Paul's example, and when we hear these testimonies of faith, this week you can reflect on these testimonies and give thanks to God for the faith that these individuals have in Christ and for their love for the saints. I think right away there is some, some payoff value to this text, and that is be like Paul. Okay? Imitate Paul because he's demonstrating for us what he's been articulating in theological terms all the way through the letter so far. Over and over again, he uses this phrase that God does something to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, when we hear of the faith that others have in Christ in their love for other believers, we are seeing the accomplishment of redemption and calling, and that should elicit from us praise to the glory and grace of God. So I would encourage you today, praise God after you hear the testimonies of these individuals. And as you interact with others in our church, and as you hear of the faith of believers in other assemblies across the Twin Cities and across the world, give thanks to God for them. Make that a regular practice of your life. We need to continue to work on this as a church as we seek to include prayers of thanksgiving for other assemblies in our pastoral prayers. We, we need to work on this as we gather on Wednesday and as we gather in our family discussion forums and we, as we hear testimonies from individuals in this church, our immediate response should be to thank God for it. 
So that's one of the reasons in our family discussion forums where we, we have a time for testimony, we stop right away and ask someone to pray for the individual and thank God for that work in their life. It, it's not silly. It's, it's trying to follow Paul's example here. I would just encourage you to do that as, as you gain knowledge of the working of God in the lives of other people. So it's w- within this prayer that Paul frames his prayer for all believers. And that is for them to know three really important things. And the first thing that Paul wants Christians to know is the hope of God's calling. Paul wants Christians to know the hope of God's calling. Now, there, there are two other things, the wealth of God's inheritance and the greatness of God's power. And from the very get-go, we should realize that Paul is orienting us to experience life and salvation from God's perspective. That is to say, our salvation and our knowledge about salvation is centered on God. He doesn't say, I want you to know the hope of your calling and the hope of your inheritance and the greatness of your power. He wants us to center ourselves on God and to experience our salvation primarily in terms of what belongs to God, because we now belong to him, which he'll comment on in a moment. But when Paul says that he wants us to know the hope of God's calling, we we start to ask ourselves, well, what is the hope of God's calling? What do I have for hope as one who has been called by God? And I think that if we did a quick poll Uh, in broader Christianity, the answer would be the hope of God's calling is that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And, And that's certainly true. I think we should find great hope that we can face death and know that we are never going to be separated from God. But the hope of God's calling is articulated by Paul cares very little about what happens to us in the moment after death. Instead, it's much more concerned with what God has been doing from before the foundation of the world and what he will bring to fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. So when you think of the hope of God's calling, if, if your first thought is that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, don't lose that, but add to that what the New Testament actually points out. And, and in particular, what Paul points out in Ephesians. So far in this text, Paul's talked about our predestination and choosing and calling in a a variety of ways, but he begins in Ephesians 1-4 by pointing out that God chose us so that we would be presented holy and blameless before him in love. When you think of your hope as a Christian, is that where you start? That one day you will be presented holy and blameless in love. That, that is hope giving. I, if you're like me, you go through every week having people point out every way that you are blameful and, and that you are not holy and that you are not loving. And, and you experience that yourself and you experience that as you interact with other people. Well, there is hope in God's calling of you. And that is that on the final day, you will be presented holy and blameless in love because you have been called in Christ so that whatever brokenness that you, you create in this world and whatever brokenness you experience in yourself in the messiness and in, in the messed upness of your life, you can have hope that in Christ you will be presented as holy, having been cleansed with the washing of the water by the word so that Christ will present you in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in him. That's the hope of your calling. So don't lose heart. So, so if you this week felt like it's not worth resisting that calling of the pleasures of sin, keep resisting. Because though you might fail again and again, a day is coming where you won't feel that any longer. Paul moves on, though, to talk about the hopes, hope of God's calling in terms of our redemption. And when we looked at that text in Ephesians 1, 7, I tried to connect our experience of redemption to Israel's experience of redemption from Egypt. And, and I think that's what needs to come to our mind, such that if you talk to an Israelite who was w- wandering around in the wilderness, what is the hope of God's calling? The answer would be, well, I am no longer a, a slave, and, and there's something set before me. There's a land of promise that we're heading to, and we're in this in-between time, but the hope of God's calling of us is that we're eventually going to get there. We're, we're going to make it, and, and we're free from the captivity of sin. And when someone asks us what our hope of God's calling is, I think we say the same thing. You know, I I was in captivity to sin. I'm in this in-between zone, in this already not yet, where I am free, but I'm not quite there yet. But God's promised that he's going to bring me home. That's the hope of our calling. And that is a hope that weary, downtrodden Christians need that does way more than hope to die. If your primary way of being in this life is, I can't wait till I'm home with the Lord and the way I'm going to get there is through death, you're, you're not recognizing the hope that God wants you to cling to now, which is his presence is with you. He's freed you from sin. He's made you his possession. He's made you a temple for his Holy Spirit so that you will never be without him. So you don't need to put your greatest hope in death which is an unnatural thing. Our, our hope allows us to face death not as a monster, but as a, a, an evil that separates us temporarily that's going to be defeated at the resurrection. Your hope now is that you are redeemed. You are free. You've been bought with a price, which is his blood. So Paul wants you to know the hope of God's calling. So rest in this hope that, that you are free that where you feel brokenness, it's not over yet. The, the game hasn't been totally won yet. It's been won. All, all, all the batters have been out because, because Jesus hit the home run, but, but he's still rounding the bases and, and there's going to be a team celebration at the end. And, and you're going to feel that brokenness and the downtroddenness of I've been sitting in the dugout on a rainy day and, and this game hasn't been fun all the time. But you, you have a hope of God's calling. And that is that you're on the winning side because you're on Jesus' side. So press forward in the hope of God's calling. But then second, God wants you to know the wealth of his inheritance. God wants you to know the wealth of your inheritance. That's the second piece of Paul's prayer in verse 18 here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this phrase can be taken in one of two ways. One way that we could take this phrase is that God wants us to know the wealth of the inheritance that we will receive as heirs of God. That is to say, Paul Paul might be suggesting that we need to know all of the splendor and grandeur and wealth that we receive as a child of God in, in the new creation. 
I don't think that's a bad way to take it, but I, I don't know that that's quite the way Paul is taking it here. So I think that's a right truth, wrong text situation. As we discussed in the, in the earlier weeks, when we looked at verse 11, we took that phrase to say, in him, we are an inheritance. And I think what Paul is trying to say is that you need to know that God values you as his inheritance. You are valuable to God. I, I wonder how many Christians stumble through this life wondering if they're of value to God at all. Well, Paul is trying to say, you are of great value to God. You are his inheritance. You are a people for his possession. And you're so valuable that you were redeemed through the blood of Jesus. So, so we could distort this and say that my salvation is all about me. That, that I'm so worthy that, that God looked at my value and, and he did something for me. So when I was in high school, there was this song that was really popular on the radio called uh, Someone Worth Dying For by a band called Mike's Chair. And that just hit me in a wrong way. I did not like that. Neither did my friends. So we wrote this little letter to their band manager and to the radio station asking them to stop playing the song because it was communicating a distortion of this truth. But, but I think in our overreaction to this wrong idea that we create our own value, we, we start to talk as if we have no value to God, as if we're nothing to him. But Paul is trying to communicate that you are a glorious inheritance for God. You have value in him. And, and so being a Christian is, is not a drudgery because you're not just an object but you are a person who's connected to the people of God who God values as his glorious inheritance. So how do we respond to that? This is how you respond to it. You stop striving to find value everywhere else. I think we spend so much of our life trying to find self worth and value by gaining the approval of others or growing a large bank account or, or gaining popularity or being funny or whatever else it might be. And, and we try to measure our value worth by that, by what the world says makes a person valuable, by your health and your fitness and your cleverness and your interests. But God makes you valuable by redeeming you and connecting you to Jesus as the body of Christ. So you don't need to waste your energy or, or chase after these other idols that promise to make you valuable when actually they just deplete you of all the value that Christ has given you. So recognize and know that God loves you. God values you, and he looks on you as a glorious inheritance. I, I don't know if any of you have had relatives who have passed away, and, and you end up with an inheritance. Well, well, sometimes you hear children and grandchildren complain about the kind of inheritance that was left for them. It's, it's measly or paltry or, or what? I just get the silverware? That, that's not the kind of inheritance that God is looking at you at. He looks at you as the kind of inheritance that all the other siblings want. That changes our way of being in this world. So God wants us to know the hope of his calling, the wealth 
of his inheritance in the saints. And then finally, he wants us to know the greatness of his power. He wants us to know the greatness of his power. So Paul goes on, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And, and I'm repeating this phrase because I want us to catch that Paul has to use a metaphor to talk about this kind of knowledge. That is to say, once again, that this knowledge is not just a mere proposition, but it's a transformational reality. It, it changes our way of being in this world because it changes our perception of God and of ourself. So I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. So God wants to know his great power. This is significant because it's what enables the other things that we need to know. We, we can have hope in God's calling because he's powerful enough to make his calling reality. Because the voice that called you and the voice that called us is the same voice that spoke this world into existence in, in the same word which upholds the universe. The, the word of his power is powerful. And, and that's why we have hope in his calling. We, we can accept his value statement and his instilling of us with value because he has the power and authority and the greatness to do it. We don't have to doubt it like, like, like we do when someone else says they value us. We kind of wonder, are they just trying to use me or, or abuse me or manipulate me? God doesn't need to do any of that because he's all powerful. His power then is something we need to know and cling on to and grasp. Now for us, we, I think, we start to diminish the significance of God's power because we live in a world, in a culture, and, and, and sadly, we've bought into it that says there's no such thing as spiritual powers out there. there. There's no such thing as realities that aren't material and physical. And so the only powers that are here are like other people. Well, Paul's writing to people who are in a city that's known for the worship of other gods where there are temples set up to other gods. And in this city in particular, the practice of magic is, is just really well known. So think back to Acts of some of the accounts of Paul where he's going through Ephesus and you have magicians and others. So for, for these individuals to hear God has great power above all others, that would be really consoling because you just left your previous belief system and your recognition of the power of these other deities and of these magicians, and you want to know, am I going to be safe? I, I think that our culture is shifting to where spirituality, spirituality in a general way is becoming more accepted to talk about, and, and, there, and we start to see people starting to lean on other things for power. And, and sometimes it shows up in an innocuous way, like essential oils or meditation or something like that. But I think as, as we sort of become a, a one globe interconnected through shared cultures of movies and, and shows and the internet and these other things, this is a reality that we're going to start to know afresh as, as we start to sense this more realistically. We might pause and say, though, how do I know that God's powerful? Uh, what about all these other things that claim power? Well, we know that God is powerful because he's demonstrated his power in Jesus Christ. So let's look at that text. And I've on the screen highlighted for you the four significant ways that God's displayed his power in Christ. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. Now, now sometimes the scriptures just mention that 
Jesus rose from the dead. Well, it's significant that over and over again, the scriptures talk about God exercising power to raise Christ from the dead. And in doing so, he defeated the most powerful thing we can think of, which is death. Death that plagues everything and, and that we'll all face. Well, God has power over that. And then God seated him at his right hands in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That is to say that, that not only did God defeat death in raising Christ from the dead, now this new man, this new humanity, this king over death, sits at the right hand of God and is in session. It's like the king is now on the throne, he's seated, and he's exercising judgment over the universe over everything that would would challenge God's power. There's nothing that can rival God's power in Christ. And this is a fulfillment of the story of the Bible. And and that's why we read in some places like Psalm 8 and others in in Psalm 110, where, where it talks about God making the world his footstool. Well, that's what's going on here. There there is no power that can rival Christ because they've been subjected by God under his feet. That's verse 22. He subjected everything under his feet. And then he appointed him as head over everything for the church. That is to say, uh, this metaphor of being the head was just a metaphor used in Greco-Roman times for like the leader of the state. Well, Christ is now the one who is the leader or, or the emperor over all other powers. And he does this, notice that phrase, for the church. Have you thought about that? Christ exercises his rulership for the church, which means that there is no power that Christians must fear because Christ rules over them on behalf of his people. The church is then identified as his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. It's interesting that Jesus is not identified as as the head of the body, which is the universe. The, The body is not all the other powers. The body is the church. So, so in this metaphor, where Christ is the head, he's the head over all things, he has power over all things, and he draws into himself the body, which is the church, such that Christ does whatever is in his own best interest, but his best interests become our best interests because we're organically connected to him, our head. So the exercise of God's power is one that is not going to be a defeating power over us, but one that welcomes us into the rule and reign of Christ. So when we think about the powers of this world, we're protected by God's power. We're not going to be defeated by it because we're now part of Christ's self-interest. That's why in Ephesians 5, this is such a good metaphor for marriage because Christ has made us his bride and he gives us himself. He sacrifices himself so that he'll present us holy and blameless in love before him. So in these three things that God wants us to know, he wants us to know the hope of our calling, the wealth of God's inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. Well, when, when we reflect on these things, I just want to point out 
that you cannot know these things apart from the Spirit of God impressing them on your heart, apart from the revelation of the Scripture, and apart from your experience as one who has been made an heir of God. This is not the kind of knowledge that can be communicated in three bullet points on a screen. It's the kind of knowledge that can only be communicated through life and living and transformation by the Spirit. This means that we do need to exercise our intellectual capacities and read the scriptures and try to understand these things, but it also means that we need to start soaking in the story of the scripture so that we can see how God did this for person after person after person in the Bible. And and this means that now as you go home and watch Star Wars or Lord of the Rings this afternoon, you, you start to connect these themes. And as you watch characters change, you look at that not just as entertainment, but a transformative way of communicating what God is doing to you. And, and it means that as you go from this place, you don't just take this as bare fact, but you try to live it in every way that you can. And it means that as we hear testimonies of faith in a moment, that we need to remember that these things are true not only for us, but it's true in them. And and as we hear these testimonies, our response should not be, these people are awesome, or or, I'm awesome because their testimony sounded like mine. But instead it should be that this is all based in God's calling, in God's value system, in God's power, so that there is nothing about you or me that accomplishes this, but that it's only through Christ in me and Christ in you. And and so the way that we're going to start our response, because our our response is a sending response. Our our worship continues when we go. Um, Backtracking, Paul Paul says that the body is the fullness of God who fills in every way. Well, everything about that sentence is debated. But, But one thing I think is sure, and that is that Christ fills the world through his body, the church. The fullness of God is spread through the church. And so every gathering is a sending gathering when we go. And, and that means that we have to frame our release from the gathered assembly in a worshipful, sent sort of way. And the way we normally do that is through a time of reflection and introspection and prayer and then dismissal with a benediction. Well, the way we're going to do that is there's a music people are going to come up here now and we're going to respond by singing this song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me because it's going to be an appropriate articulation of these truths, that everything that we are and everything that we know has to be transformative, and it's rooted in God's power and God's grace. 